You are now listening to the July 10th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the seven signs, sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with the seven signs. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the Seven Signs. Jesus performed many miracles during his ministry on earth. Those miracles would not have been possible unless they came from the mighty power of God. As such, we shared last time that the Hebrew word dunamis, used in four books of the gospel, would translate into what we might associate with power, might, and authority. While the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the miracles as might or show of power, the book of John offers a different perspective regarding Jesus' miracles, that is, from the perspective of what we might call signs. People in Israel at the time of Jesus showed more interest in the might of Jesus that came through his miracles and how they could benefit from them. However, Apostle John wanted us to get to know Jesus for who he is through those miracles. So instead of calling Jesus' miracles dunamis, John called them simeon, which means signs. We will consider more closely who Jesus is through his signs so that we will be able to gain eternal life through the true meaning of his miracles. In other words, we will contemplate who Jesus is through his signs so that we may be able to gain eternal life from them. Today, we will focus on Jesus' first sign, the sign of making wine from water at the wedding in Cana. Many of us may have already read and heard about this miracle. To understand the essence of this miracle, we need to look beyond this amazing feat and get at the true intention behind this miracle. We need to look beyond this awesome act of making wine from water or the power that was required to make it happen. Otherwise, our understanding will just remain at a superficial level. For example, we might think of ourselves, since Jesus was able to make wine from water, I'm sure he can make bread from stones, or it will even be better if he makes money from papers. After all, it was marvelous for Jesus to make wine from water. He obeyed his mother, and got the host out of the fix that he had dug himself into by not preparing enough wine for the guests. Yes, these are true statements, but the meaning of the sign Jesus performed was much more than that. It was not John's intention to simply tell us how great this miracle was or how it benefited people. John was trying to tell us who Jesus really is, behind the person that turned water into wine. Then, we can get behind the appearance of this miracle and begin to raise deeper questions. What does wine mean to the people of Israel? Why did Jesus show this as the first sign? What messages was he trying to convey by performing this sign? Let's read John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11 together. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. 
and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So why did wine run out at the wedding? There could have been a number of items that could have run out. Food could have run out, or oil could have run out. Suppose some raw ingredients that went into making dishes had run out, and Jesus miraculously produced them for the host of the wedding. We would submit, if that were the case, what Jesus did might have been a miracle, but not a sign. To get to this point, it is very important to first understand what wine means in Judean, Israel's culture, especially what it has meant in the Bible. Most of us think of wine as an alcoholic beverage and may feel a bit uncomfortable thinking about drinking wine. However, the Bible tells us that being drunk is a sin and does not necessarily tell us drinking wine is a sin. Rather, in Judean culture, Wine signifies happiness and blessing. And the Bible concurs with this view of wine. Psalms chapter 104 verse 15 tells us that God gave people wine to make their hearts glad. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 11 verses 13 and 14, God promised the Israelites that he would give the early and late rain on that land so that they can gather the grain, new wine, and oil if they listen obediently to his commands and love and serve him. Of course, occasionally wine can be used to signify a curse or a cause of sin. That happens when humans leave God's presence and indulge in it to their own wanton satisfaction. Having wine within God's provisions is a celebratory and glad act. The Bible tells us that wine was enjoyed after a long and laborious work and to share happiness. Isaiah chapter 24 records warnings about the cities against which God's judgment was intimate. The cursed city is described in Isaiah chapter 24 verses 9 through 11. To describe how desolate the city was to become, the verses say people would not drink wine with songs. There would be an outcry in the streets because there would be no wine. All the joy would disappear and the happiness would be no more. But then in the next chapter, Isaiah chapter 25, tells us the following in verse 6. 
the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, and refined aged wine. God promised them that once he is done judging evil, he would host a banquet for all the righteous people with wine, well-aged and well-refined. There are similar descriptions in the books of Joel and Amos. Both Joel and Amos are minor prophets from the Old Testament. Words like new wine and sweet wine are used in Joel chapters 2 and 3 to explain how people who have been delivered would earn happiness on God's day of judgment. In Amos chapter 9 verses 13 and 14, we see the following. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. Given this portrayal of wine, the Israelites associated wine with something positive, something they would celebrate a joyous occasion with. The promise from God was that the Messiah would come on the day of the Lord's judgment. The people of Israel believed that on that day, wine would be plentiful and it would flow over. By now, some of the listeners may be getting an inkling as to why the first sign Jesus performed involved wine. What do you think the Jesus sign of making wine from water at the wedding in Cana signified given the biblical and cultural meaning of wine at that time? We will save it for next time as to the deeper meaning behind the first sign of Jesus. We will take a look at this sign from Jesus at the wedding in Cana more closely. If you read John chapter 2 again, keeping what we shared today in your mind, you may begin to see what Jesus' disciples must have thought after witnessing Jesus' miracle at the wedding. This concludes today's message from the seven signs. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Joseph Loved and Hated. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. We're looking at Joseph living the dream. We've seen some background about Joseph, his family and all that, like dysfunction to the 10th power. We see in the Bible that he was deeply loved and deeply hated. You could say that about him. You are probably able to define your life in three or four different stages. Probably, you know, your infant to what, teens, it could be one stage, and it could be uh, your 20s to your midlife. But Joseph's life can be divided into three distinct uh, sections as well. You got birth to 17, and then you've got his 17 to about 30, and then 30 to the end of his life. And that's the way his biography reads. I don't like to say the story of Joseph necessarily. I'll probably end up saying that now and then, because sometimes you think, oh, the story was made up. This is a biography of somebody whose life absolutely reveals the truth of Romans 8, 28, which says, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Joseph's life shows that just perfectly. In fact, at the, near the end of his uh, biography, he's going to look at those who wanted to hurt him, and he's going to say, 
what you meant for evil against me, God turned to good. And see, someday we're going to stand before Jesus and we're going to be able to say basically that, you know, Lord, what they meant for evil, you turned around for good in my life. That is true, not for a few of us, that is true for every single one of us. Now, in Genesis chapter 37, let's look at verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, remember that Bilhah and Zilpah, it sounds like a reality, marriage reality show or something here when you read <laughs> You try to keep track of all of this. But remember that Bilhah and Zilpah were his, you could call them secondary wives. Sometimes they're called concubines, but what is that? But it's kind of like his secondary wives. They bore some children to him. But Rachel, Leah and Rachel were his actual wives. Uh, Leah was not the wife he loved. Leah had been kind of snuck in on him. I know that's a whole weird thing, remember? Uh, he had worked seven years for Rachel, but instead Laban, he got Leah. And so Laban says, well, I'll give you Rachel if you work another seven years for me. So Rachel is the one he loved. I mean, he fell in love with her from the moment he saw her. It's one of those things. So that's who he wanted to have children with. And wouldn't you know that, that no, she couldn't have children. For decades, no children. But Leah had a lot of children, and Bilhah and Zilpah had children, but not Rachel until finally God allowed her to conceive, and she had a boy named Joseph. So she had this precious boy named Benjamin. Then seven years later, she had another little boy named no, Joseph was, her, uh, sorry, uh, she had Joseph. And then seven years later, she had Benjamin. But she really never got to know him. He never knew his mom because she died giving birth to Benjamin. Wow, think about it. Joseph, Leah is dead too at this point. Leah and Rachel, who would be the real mothers, are dead. Now, it's the secondary mothers that Joseph and Benjamin are being raised by. Joseph remembers his mom. When you're 10 years old and your mom dies, you remember her. So he would remember her. Benjamin wouldn't have because he never knew his mom. But you're being raised by two secondary wives, one who hated your mother. And then you're being raised with nine other older brothers and older sister, nine other older brothers, the story talks about, and they're not necessarily nice to you. And that's kind of where we step into Joseph's biography. Verse 7, 37, verse 2. So it's saying, 17-year-old Joseph was pastoring the flock with his brothers. So he was learning the family business. And Joseph brought a bad report of his older half-brothers to their father, Jacob. Now, because Joseph told on his brothers, many Bible critics have said that uh, jo Joseph was a tattletale. He was, he was a snitch. 
And you wouldn't believe, as I'm studying, I'm studying a lot. I'm studying, and then I'm looking at what other Bible scholars have said about this. 98% of them are putting Joseph down this, oh, the little snitch, oh, the tattletale. And it's like, wait a minute. Where does it say that in the Bible? You're reading into that. that. Is that what you would be like if you were Joseph? So my commentary is, and he was a tattle. I, I've, you'll, look at my comment. I scratch some of this stuff out and I say, no way. Or where did you get this? I'm having these arguments, you know, with the commentaries. So just know, that's what some people say, but I'm right. Okay, just know. I'm going to write my own. There's nothing inherently wrong with telling the truth or reporting something you've seen. I mean, if you see a crime, you call the police, you're not a snitch, you know, you're reporting a crime. And, and listen, listen, Joseph's dad sent him to check on his brothers because Jacob didn't trust those nine older brothers, stepbrothers, actually, didn't trust them at all. He had suspicions that something was going on and they need to be carefully uh, kept track of. Now look at verse 3. 3 is something that stumbles some people. I, I tell you, for a long time it did me as well. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Today, if I were to say, you know, I love one of my children more than I love the others, you would think, whoa, you need to go to parenting class, right? So when we read this, we're thinking, how could you love one child more than another? That doesn't seem right. It isn't condemned in the scripture that Jacob loved Joseph more than his brothers. It's just stated. There's no judgment. There's nothing. And so we have to be careful, though, not to read into stuff what the Bible doesn't say. Aside from the sovereign plan of God for him to love Joseph more, uh, there are probably some reasons why they held less esteem in his eyes. That's for sure. They had brought incredible shame on his name. They weren't worthy, frankly, you guys. They weren't worthy of any kind of respect. He couldn't have respect for them. I can't imagine. They repeatedly brought shame on him in the most egregious ways. They abused God's covenant sign in one instance. Simeon and Levi, two of his sons, they mass murdered. They slaughtered an entire, all, the entire men of one city. And then they took their wives and children and took them as their own. They plundered and took everybody else to be their own. Those boys aren't anything to be proud about, are they? Another one is the sons, Judah, I mean Reuben, he committed incest. He, he slept with one of Jacob's concubines. Well, I'm not proud of that kid. Judah sinned against the family by marrying a pagan woman, and then he neglected a relative he was supposed to care for. Not proud of him. But I believe the biggest factor that Joseph is in the forefront and is a love more than anybody is because he was the firstborn son of Rachel. This is the son we waited for. Man, he's the son that she and I have been waiting for all these years. I bet that even when he looked into her, 
just he, he looked into Joseph's face that he saw Rachel. Rachel was beautiful. I bet he saw some features. You know, uh, we're told later that Joseph was a very handsome guy. And maybe he took after his mom. But he'd look at that kid and say, well, there's, there's our son. And so just Joseph, um, being that place of, in that place of love, uh, was treated in a special way. Jacob wanted it to be clear to the entire family that he was elevating Joseph over all of them. So how did he do this? Anybody got an idea? You know, let's start. How did he do it? Go, you can say it. Go ahead. The coat of colors. Yeah, we call it the coat of many colors, which actually should be translated from the Hebrew more like the coat of long sleeves. Because, hey, workers didn't wear long sleeves. They had to have short sleeves. The, the long, long sleeves uh, came from royalty. In fact, the, the other time that this term is used in the New Testament is speaking of a, a princess's clothing. So it was robes for royalty, right? So we can't forget the importance of clothing in society. We take some of it for granted, like the colors we wear. Some of you are wearing really kind of earth tones, uh, subdued colors, but some of you, you got some bright colors on, beautiful yellows and reds and, and purples and greens. And, you know, I, I see and patterns, you know, this is a relatively modern phenomenon at the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and uh, for his, for ancient times, for thousands of years, the only colors you could have as well. What color does that, that plant make if we boil it down? What color does that flower make? What, what does that dirt make? You know, so you had these earth tones. You had color of a sheep's wool, black, uh, maybe some browns, white, and that they made linen in Egypt in a white color. But other than that, you were, if you had color, that was reserved for kings. It was reserved for royalty. Here's Joseph. Here are the brothers. Jacob is saying, I want it to be clear to everybody that Joseph is over all. In fact, it's interesting that in this culture, Joseph, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph, they were Semites, okay? In fact, today, when you are, I hate Jews, it's anti-Semitism, right? So uh, in Egyptian, at the same time, in Egyptian hieroglyphics and art, you'll see Semites coming into Egypt and the rulers are dressed in long sleeved robes with multicolors in the robe. So it dovetails right here with the scripture, doesn't it? So Joseph elevated this coat of colors is given to him, not just as a, a nice gift, but it's given as a symbol of his position in the family. Joseph was given the right and privileges of the firstborn son. Now, you all are thinking, wait, he was the 10th son. Reuben was the firstborn son. Remember we talked about the birthright, how the firstborn son, the firstborn son received the double portion, ruled the clan when the father died. You remember all that? So Reuben was supposed to get that. Joseph was the 10th born son, but Jacob says, I'm going to give you the birthright, Joseph. You're going to be the leader. You're going to be the preeminent one. You're going to have the birthright. 
How could he do that legally? Legally, Reuben was the firstborn. Well, this is interesting. Joseph could be have the birthright because he was the firstborn son of Rachel and Jacob. So he was a firstborn. He was given the preeminence and rights of the firstborn son. He got the birthright. He was to replace Reuben as having the preeminence. Jacob did not want Reuben leading the family because of his sin. When at the end of his life, Jacob was blessing his sons. When it came to Reuben, it was almost like a curse he placed upon him. He was not happy with that son. Now, of course, this put Jacob in a very difficult spot, didn't it? It's like, isn't it my fault dad is doing this to me? Because the result is, what do you think his brothers are going to feel about this? They're older than him. I mean, they're older by a lot. Verse 4 talks about their reaction. Look at verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they, what gang, hated him. And they could not speak peaceably to him. The Hebrew idea of hate is different than our idea of hate. When I hate uh, and you hate, it's more like uh, the simmering uh, feeling, right? Hebrew hate was different. Think of a bow and arrow. This is a great analogy. When the string is pulled and the arrow is there, that moment between, before you launch the arrow, that's hate. It's that moment just before when a Hebrew hated, the idea was, ooh, ooh, something bad is going to follow. Something bad is on the way. They hated their brother. Something bad was on their way. And we know, right? We know that something bad is going to be done to Joseph by his brothers. goes on to say that, verse 4, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. The Hebrew says, le shalom. They could not speak shalom peaceably to him. Now, in Israel, if you speak Hebrew to another, uh, someone else who speaks Hebrew, you greet each other shalom. You go to, you're a tourist in Israel. You're ahead of, you're ahead of this, uh, if you can say shalom, because shalom means hello and goodbye. So, hey, there you go. Shalom, shalom. It's a greeting. It's a kindness. It's a courtesy. They would not shalom him. That's what the Hebrew says here. No greeting. You know, if you want to, if you want to show your disdain for somebody, You ignore them when you pass them. Bottom line was they were jealous of him. That's what verse 11 says. And his brothers were jealous of him. Later, um, Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 7 preaches a long sermon. But part of it, he talks about Joseph. And he said that it was because of jealousy his brothers gave him over to the Egyptians. Jealousy. Joseph's brothers were so jealous and envious of this blatant show of favoritism and and giving the 17-year-old the birthright that they hated him and they were jealous of him. I read a legend about a godly man, a hermit, who lived in a cave in order to 
to just devote his life to seeking God, to praying and to meditating. And Satan sent some demons to tempt him, to try to get him to lust or sin. But uh, demon after demon came back reporting to Satan. They said, this guy won't budge. He's fixed. He's immovable. We cannot get him to move. Finally, Satan said, get out of the way. Let me show you how it's done. So he went up and he, he went behind the hermit, you know, religious order here. And he said, your brother has just been made the bishop. Immediately, the hermit's face fell. He became envious and jealous that his brother would be given one of the high position in the church. And here he is in a cave. Didn't matter till his brother got it. Often jealousy is what Satan uses when he can't find any other tool to get to us. And often jealousy is harbored in families. You may not be envious of what the other person's doing out there. I, I, don't, I care less about them out there. I don't know them. I don't associate with them. I know nothing about them. But when it's somebody in your family that has something or gets something or promoted or gets, I've seen it. Bigger house, nicer job, more income. I've seen jealousy and envy. Or your best friend. They don't know you're really not a best friend with them anymore because you really are envious of them now. You're jealous of what's happened to them. People are jealous of God's blessing on other people's lives. A coworker, are you jealous of them? Jealousy can be harbored in families. I'm thinking of... The very first family, Adam and Eve, had Cain and Abel, first two sons. And because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's, Cain became very jealous and envious of Abel, and he murdered him. The first murder in the history of the world was caused by jealousy and envy harbored in a family. I can't help also but think about Jesus' story of the prodigal son. And when the prodigal son comes home, the father is thrilled. My son has come home and he, let's throw a banquet. Go, get all the food, get ready, call everybody. Let's get going here. And the righteous brother who'd never done anything wrong, instead of, yeah, dad, you know, I'll help cater this, you know, instead he's like, What? Why are you doing this for him? I've always been here. I've never let you down. Jealous, envious, wouldn't go to his own brother's party. I also think of David and Saul. They were good friends, you know, until David started to get more praise than Saul. And then Saul wanted to kill him out of envy and jealousy. It's been said When jealousy comes in the front door, love goes out the back door. If you are having a problem with jealousy and envy, brother, sister, you're having a problem with love. That's a real problem. It's a problem with love. I want you to hold your place here, but would you go to the book of Proverbs? With me for a second, 
we look at Proverbs chapter 14. And I think it's a very good idea to read a chapter of Proverbs every day. We say, read Proverbs to keep your heart right with people and read Psalms to keep your heart right with God. Read a chapter of Psalms a day. Read a, a chapter of Proverbs a day. There's 31 Proverbs. You can go every month. You can go through Proverbs. Use a, a translation that's easy to read. Proverbs 14, verse 30. You find it? Oh, I didn't tell you the verse yet. Verse 30. Let's read verse 30 together. And I don't care what how your translation reads. It'll sound like a, a, a big crazy thing, but let's read it. Anyway, Proverbs 14:30, whatever translation, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. You get the rots the bones part? Envy. Envy rots the bones. The New Living Translation says, jealousy is like cancer in the bones. Bone cancer is horrible. It's extremely painful. Think it destroys the structure of your body. Your life falls apart. Jealousy is like cancer in the bones, guys. It'll destroy you. It will eat you up. You become critical in your heart towards the person you're jealous towards, and you hate them. You can't even look at them. They're, you end up thinking about them too much all the time becomes an obsession almost. God wants to free you from this. You can't go on like that. God wants to free you with this. And I, I could say, how can we be free from this? And you know what? I could get as many as are here and are listening. I could get ideas from you. And I'm sure most of them would be amazing ideas. There's that many thoughts about how to get through jealousy and envy, how to get rid of it. But I'm just going to share you with you how God freed me from that. I'm going to say in one particular instance, but it's probably one of the biggest times that I struggled with this in my whole life. So this is one of those times when I'm going to kind of hand you my heart. You're going to hold my heart in your hands and be careful. I want you to listen. Don't judge me, okay? All right? Um, I want you to turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. I want to tell you my story. I don't know how many details to give because, you know, there's a certain limit to what I don't want to overshare. But um, stuff was happening that was affecting me and um, where I was in my spiritual life and what I was doing for the Lord. And um, somebody else was way ahead, and you know how, I don't know what to say. I became so jealous of what was happening with this person and with where they were. And I had reasons. Of course, you always can justify jealousy, can't you? Well, why? This should be me. It was it doesn't sound like a lot. If I gave you more details, you, you could understand even more. But um, I became obsessed with this. Unfortunately, um, I was reminded of this every single day. 
this was in my face. I could not escape it every single day. It was like if you lived someplace and, and you, it was a circle K that you were jealous of and you had to drive by the circle every, every single day. You know, the only way you could get there is to go, you know, a highway around or something. I don't know. You know, it was just like every single day this was in my face. It got bigger and bigger and bigger that, that was, it was consuming me. And, um, I was so heavy burdened. I, I got to know Dr. Wayne Grudem. He's uh, just a great Bible theologian. He, I don't agree with everything he says, but such a godly man. And I said, invited myself, I said, could Leslie and I come over for lunch after church on Sunday? Sure. So we go over and after dinner, he, he says, how could I pray for you? Well, it's when the dam burst, you know. I don't know what to do. I'm so ashamed about this. And he says, just so gentle, kinder, older guy, just so gentle. He says, well, let me see. And he had his Bible in his hand. And this guy is crazy smart. The Bible he uses isn't your translation. He reads it from the Hebrew and the Greek. Okay, so like, he's looking through his Greek New Testament. He says, I, I, he's praying for me, and he's going through the pages. He says, Mark, I have a word from God for you. I was kind of sitting on the edge of my seat. I had been crying. I wanted to get rid of this burden of jealousy and envy. And he says, this, this is what the Lord would have you hear. And this, this part of the scripture, the context is, there's talk about how some of the disciples are going to die. Peter had been told how he was going to die. So they're walking along, and John is over there, and, and John was Jesus' best friend, okay? He was a disciple that sat next to Jesus at the Passover meal, you remember? And so Peter looks over at him, and he says, well, well how about him, you know? What about him? How is he going to die? So we pick it up at John. I, I kind of described John 21, verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus left following them. The one that sitting, was sitting next to Jesus at the Lord's Supper. 21. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that you he remain until I come, what is that to you? You what? Follow me. When he read that to me, it was like a burden was lifted. It's like Shane Mail fell off of me. It was like I was just freed because the Lord was saying, Mark, if I want to do, to do something amazing with somebody over there, what is that to you? You follow me. Get your eyes off of other people. Now, look, that was my thing. What's your thing? I don't know what your thing is. But if you've got your eyes on somebody else and you're wishing that was your walk and you're wishing that that's what they, you had and they seem to have life better or you want it, whatever, you know, positions, possessions, whatever it might be, look, get your eyes off of them. What is that to you? What concern is that to you, Jesus says? None. 
it's none of your business. You follow me. And when Wayne said that to me, it freed my life. It freed my life. In fact, I have placed in different places where I work. I, I printed that out, just the part. What is that to you, dot, 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 you follow me. Look, it frees me. It has freed me from jealousy and envy. It, I, it really is comforting. What is that to me? I have my own past. Jesus says, follow me. He's ahead of me. I'm supposed to follow him. I'm not supposed to go over there because he's not there. I'm supposed to follow him this way. Not your path, my path. And I want to urge you, brothers and sisters, I want to urge you to follow Jesus. Get your eyes off of other people, other places, other things, others' possessions, others' positions. And follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. You'll be freed. You'll be freed. I was freed. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that there is liberty. And uh, my story is just one of, of many. There's nothing great about me. I mean, you had to do this for me, obviously. But I thank you that there is freedom when we know that it's your plan for us that we follow and we get our eyes off of other people and other things and other places. So our commitment and our desire right now is to just pause a moment, hear you say, what is that to you? What concern is that of yours? You follow me. And we will commit ourselves with your help, Lord, with the power of the Holy Spirit to do that, to follow you. We ask this through Jesus Christ. Everybody said, amen.
This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English speaking children. Our office number is 602 866 and email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello, everyone, it's Terry, and this is The God of Abraham, where we see how God molded Abraham into the father of the faith through the book of Genesis. Last time, we quickly went over the topics from Genesis chapter 1 through 11. God began creation to have eternal fellowship with his people. Adam and Eve, who were the first people, were tempted by the serpent's word instead of God's word and chose to sin. The history of man afterwards continued to be a history of sin. Despite people repeating this history of sin, God has repeatedly shown a history of grace and salvation. Let's think about this history of grace. The Bible makes it clear, first of all, that man is a sinner. We are sinners by our nature, and we are sinners by our actions. We must also remember that God does not just pour out His grace, but He brings judgment upon sin. What I'm about to say next follows this pattern. A person's sin results in God's judgment upon that sin. Then, God's judgment is followed by God's grace. Let's think about Adam and Eve again. Adam and Eve sinned. The judgment upon that sin was death and being driven out from the Garden of Eden. God brought judgment upon the sin, but He poured grace by clothing them in garments of skin. That grace continued on. When we look at the end of chapter 3, it says after God drove out Adam and Eve, He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. How did God show grace by guarding the way to the Tree of Life? We often think that God prevents us from doing something as a punishment. Preventing us is not a punishment, but grace. If we look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, it explains why God prevented them from eating from the Tree of Life. I'll read it. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Adam and Eve have now become sinners who disobey God's word. God prevented them from eating the fruit from the tree of life so they wouldn't face the fate of eternal sinners. In other words, God didn't prevent them from eating the fruit from the tree of life so they couldn't live eternally. God showed grace by preventing them from becoming eternal sinners. We have been forgiven of our sins through Jesus Christ. Instead of living as eternal sinners, 
we have gained eternal life by becoming righteous through the work of Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, it says the tree of life is also in the New Jerusalem. It symbolizes that at that time, we will live as eternal righteous ones. Therefore, God showed grace by placing cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. To summarize, people sinned and God brought judgment by driving them out of Eden. However, God showed grace by clothing them in garments of skin and prevented them from the fruit of the tree of life so they wouldn't live eternally as sinners. Now let's look at Cain. Cain sinned by killing his younger brother Abel. How did God bring judgment upon him? Genesis chapter 4 verse 12 says, When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. When he worked the ground, it didn't yield crop, so he couldn't settle and had to wander around. This was God's judgment upon Cain. Cain told God, I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. I'm afraid. God then poured his grace upon Cain. God put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Now let's think about the story of the people who appear in Genesis chapter 6. At that time, all the people sinned. Genesis chapter 6 verse 11 says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God brought judgment upon the earth that was full of sin by sending a flood. However, God's grace appears again. What was it? Noah's family received grace by gaining life through the ark. For Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, for Cain sinned in Genesis chapter 4, and for the sin of the entire earth in Genesis chapter 6, God brought judgment upon each of them by driving Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, by making Cain a wanderer on earth, and by wiping away the earth. At the same time, God showed grace by preventing Adam and Eve from eating from the tree of life and dying as eternal sinners. God showed grace by putting a mark on Cain so he wouldn't get killed. God showed grace to Noah's family by placing them in the ark so they wouldn't get wiped away with the earth. In Genesis chapter 11, Noah's descendants sinned again. They went against God by building a tower. They didn't believe God's word that never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. They built a high tower and covered it with pitch to make it waterproof. They sinned by considering God as an enemy of the people and tried to protect themselves from God's judgment. God brought judgment upon them by scattering them over the face of the whole earth. God confused the language of the whole world and scattered them over the face of the whole earth. As I mentioned before, there is a pattern here, which is the sin of a human and the judgment of God. If so, God's grace should follow, right? What was God's grace? First, I'll read Genesis chapter 11, verse 9. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. 
This shows God's judgment towards the people who built the Tower of Babel. Then it shows God's grace following the judgment. Here is verse 10, which is the next verse. This is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphasad. Verse 26 continues with Shem's family line. It says, After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. The same pattern of human sin, judgment, and God's grace repeatedly appears. God's grace towards the incident of the Tower of Babel, which was the betrayal of all humanity towards God, was the grace through Abraham. God's great grace towards the incident of the Tower of Babel started with Abraham and ended with Jesus Christ. Abraham didn't just randomly appear one day. Within God's perfect plan, he didn't end the sin of humanity with judgment, but saved us with sin. God's character of love began with choosing a person named Abraham. All humanity betrayed God, and God's grace toward all humanity started with Abraham. Now we'll read through Genesis chapter 12, and I hope we can see God's hand of grace. Abraham appears at the end of chapter 11, and Abraham's father Terah tells the family that they will leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go to the land of Canaan. However, on their way, they reach the place called Haran and settled there. The Bible doesn't explain why Terah tried to go to the land of Canaan. It just says he tried to go to Canaan but arrived at Haran, which was the midpoint, and settled there without going further. Verse 32, which is the last verse of chapter 11, says Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 is one of the most famous Bible verses, and it says, The Lord has said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. As we read the Bible, we might think the following way about this part. Terah tried to go to Canaan with his family, but he stayed in Haran and didn't go further but lived there. When he was 205 years old, he died in Haran. Later on, God appeared to Abraham and told him to leave Haran. This is an incorrect thought. We must train ourselves to think as we read the Bible. Let's think about it. Terah had Abram, Nahor, and Haran at the age of 70. It's not clear whether Abram, Nahor, and Haran were triplets, or Terah had Abram at 70 and had the other brothers afterwards. We do know that Terah had Abraham at the age of 70. If so, there is a 70-year age difference between Terah and Abraham. However, the Bible says Terah died at the age of 205. If so, how old was Abraham when Terah died? There is a 70-year age difference, so 205 minus 70 is 135 years old. Genesis chapter 12 verse 4 says Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran. Therefore, when Abraham left Haran, his father Terah didn't die yet and lived 60 more years after Abraham left. 
If so, why did the Bible make it seem like Terah died, even though he had not died? There are many instances in the Bible where a person's role ends, and the attention shifts to another person and ends the life of the previous person. We can see this in the story of Isaac and Jacob as well. Let's go back to one of the most famous verses in the Bible. I want us to think about the essence of faith from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. First, Abraham didn't seek God, but God called Abraham. There is no one among us who seeks after God. He must call us in order for us to see Him. God must desire to appear Himself for us to know Him. The second thing to think about the essence of faith is that when one receives a calling, he must leave. When God calls us to save us from the fallen world, we must follow His voice and leave that place. If God calls us and we don't leave, then we will fall with the world. Finally, the last essence of faith from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 is that God will lead us on the road we leave on. I want you to look carefully. God didn't just say to leave. God said, go to the land He will show. God didn't say, go where you want, but to the land He will show. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 says, Abraham went even though he did not know where he was going. It means when Abraham received his calling, he left without clearly knowing what kind of place he would be going to. If God explained everything about what kind of place Abraham would be going to, then Abraham wouldn't have needed great faith because he would have left already knowing everything. However, Abraham did not know, but he trusted the voice of God who told him to go, and he took a step. That was the first step of faith. God led Abraham's steps to the place he didn't know. We're the same way. When we decided to believe in Jesus, we made a decision even though we didn't exactly know what kind of place heaven is. We decided to follow Jesus because He is Jesus, and He loves us, and we want to go where He is telling us to go. The Bible doesn't give us many explanations about heaven where we will live. Truthfully, we don't really know what kind of place heaven is. We don't know what we will be doing there while we live there eternally. The Bible doesn't give us detailed explanations about that. In a few verses, it says there will be no more death, tears, mourning, or crying, or pain. Like Abraham, our first step of faith is going even though we don't know where we're going. We are not going on that path alone. God will show us and walk with us. This is the essence of faith shown from Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. Next week, we'll take a closer look at chapter 12. I'll see you next week. Goodbye.
pleased in that I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.